Hello, and welcome to the first edition of Dr. Music. My name is Matthew Marullo, and it is my intention with these podcasts to make your life better by introducing you to music that you do not necessarily hear on the radio. Now, a lot of this will be classical music, but it will also will be other styles. And I should start by saying, when you hear the word classical, a lot of people just think of old music. Well, that's not always true because there are people who are writing classical music today, just imitating the styles of many, many composers from the past. And it's new music, although they're imitating an old style. So I never liked that description of old music. Uh, Some people will say, well, it's serious concert music. I don't like that either because it's not always serious. For instance, and pardon my disgusting singing voice, but you know this piece? Well, that's by Mozart, but it definitely wasn't a serious piece. It was written for outdoor evening parties, you know, in, in parks while people are just having a party and eating, drinking, and talking with some nice relaxing music in the background. Although a lot of people will listen to that piece and say, oh, that, that's definitely classical music. Uh, it's, it is classical music, but it's not serious classical music. It's very lighthearted. Now, some people will say classical music is just not popular music. Well, you have to really be careful of how you define your terms there. Because if you talk about the various genres of popular music that you might hear on a popular music radio station, then certainly classical music is very different. But if you talk about popular music within classical music, well, there is a whole lot of popular music in what we call classical music. For instance, the Slavonic dances of Dvorak, the Hungarian dances of Brahms, the waltzes of Johann Strauss Jr., These pieces do not require a lot of time and effort to absorb. They're they're not meant to be challenging pieces. They're meant to be enjoyed immediately, like popular music. And they are written with such great ingenuity and skill and talent that they've survived, just like the very serious pieces of classical music, like Beethoven's Fifth Symphony, you know, that kind of thing. So I like to think of classical music as... Music written for the concert stage that has passed the test of time. A music that, despite how old it is, it will be around for your great-great-great-great-great-great-grandchildren to listen to. It's not going away anytime soon. Now remember, when I talk about classical music in this sense, I'm not, of course, talking about all the music in a particular century. For instance, all the music in the 19th or the 18th century, most of it has been swallowed up in oblivion and completely forgotten. But there's a small subset that manages to survive, and it's this special subset of all the music that was written that really says something special about humanity and the human condition. There are certain works of art that manage to express universal truths about life and people in a very special way that enables those works of art to survive generation after generation. Also, you should know that the term classical music is kind of misleading because the word classic in music history really refers to a period, the classic period, 
which is the music of, for instance, composers like Mozart, Haydn, early Beethoven. Yet somebody like Tchaikovsky is not in the classic period. He wrote in the Romantic period. So when you talk about classical music encompassing hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, it's very misleading because we have only one period in music history called the classic period. But we're going to be talking about that with all these podcasts. Also, this series is really for people who are not very familiar with classical music. I mean, anybody can listen to it, but it's really for listeners who are kind of familiar with some classical music and want to get to know it a little bit better, or maybe you don't know anything about classical music whatsoever. And like I said, we are going to be doing other styles. We're going to be doing some jazz styles, some film music, a little bit of everything. Now, let me just give you my biography, and I'm going to give you the 15-second version. Why is it called Dr. Music? Well, I did my bachelor's at Colgate University, my Master of Arts degree in Music Theory and Composition at the Eastman School of Music, and finally, my Doctor of Musical Arts at Boston University. And my doctorate is in Music Theory and Composition, but don't you worry, I'm not going to scare you away with very technical jargon about music theory. You do not have to know any music theory whatsoever. I am going to explain everything to you in layman's terms, so that when you go to your next party, you can spout all this stuff in a language that will impress everybody and make you their best friend. Instantly. I guarantee it. This is hot stuff you're going to be listening to. Trust me on that. All right, let's get right into it. Today I'd like to talk about Impressionism in music. And the best way for you to understand that is to first look at an Impressionistic painting. So... What I'd like you to do is to look at a painting by Claude Monet, M-O-N-E-T, French painter of the 19th century, and the name of the painting is called The Water Lily Pond. So I'm going to pause, and you could get on your electronic device and look at an image of the Water Lily Pond. I'm pausing, pausing, I'm still pausing, 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 you done? Okay. So... When you look at that painting, you'll see it does not look realistic. It doesn't look like a photograph. It's not meant to look like a photograph. You notice that the brush brush strokes are kind of very light, and the whole painting looks hazy, almost as if the sun was in the artist's eye. There's a, a kind of blurred look to that painting and to many Impressionistic paintings. When the first Impressionistic paintings came out, there was a critic who was not very crazy about the new style, so he called it Impressionism because he thought the artist was not painting the object, but the impression of an object, but the name stuck. It's kind of like the physicist Fred Hoyle, who thought the whole idea of the Big Bang as the creation of the universe was completely ridiculous, so he coined the term Big Bang, and Well, the Big Bang stuck, and we now know that's exactly what happened. Now, if Impressionism in painting gives you kind of a hazy, blurred effect, then how do you translate that into music? In order to understand that, what I'd like to do first is play an excerpt from a piece you might be familiar with by Tchaikovsky. Let's listen to it. 
recognize that? Yeah, that is Romeo and Juliet. It's a concert overture by Tchaikovsky. Now, what I want to do is I want to play it again, but I want you to kind of concentrate not on the melody, but the background horns. The, the horns, now excuse my singing again, but you know the horns are going like this. Da, 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 kind of back and forth and oscillating two, you know, two notes. Because you could actually hear the pulse of the music. Now, when I mean the pulse, I mean the meter. The meter is the pulse that you can tap your finger to. And the meter of this particular piece is four. So I'm going to be counting to four as you listen. All right, let's try it again. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. You've heard this piece, right? They always play it with two lovers running towards each other in slow motion on the beach, and one of them steps on a crab and screams. It's a famous piece, right? Now I'm going to introduce you to an impressionistic piece of music by a French composer named Claude Debussy, and we're going to see why that particular piece of music is considered hazy or blurry like the water lily pond, that painting that I just introduced by Claude Monet. The name of this piece by Debussy is called Prelude to the Afternoon of a Fawn. Now, fawn is not F-A-W-N, but F-A-U-N. You know what that is? That's a mythological creature. It's basically a half-man, half-goat. This is based on a poem by a French poet of the 19th century named Mallarmé. And he wrote a poem called Afternoon of the Fawn, in which this fawn seduces a whole bunch of nymphs. And I'm not going to get into the poem itself because this is a G-rated podcast, but you can explore it if you'd like to. So this orchestral piece by Debussy is directly based on that poem. First, we're going to just listen to a little part of it, and then we're going to talk about why it's impressionistic. Is that lovely or what? That's got to warm your heart. I mean, just forget for a moment that it's about a half-man, half-goat seducing a whole bunch of nymphs. But it's, it's really beautiful music. Now, I'm going to play it again, but I'd like you to listen again to the background. The strings are playing the, the main melody, that soaring melody. But in the background, just like Tchaikovsky, you're going to hear da-da, 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 da-da. Yeah, I guess that's what composers learn when they go to love theme school. If you ever want to write a love theme for orchestra, make sure the background goes da-da-da-da. It seems to be a popular thing to do. Now, here's the difference. Remember in Tchaikovsky, I was counting to four. One, two, three, four. Because the meter of that 
oscillating figure, you know, those two notes match the melody. So I was able to count to four. But remember, this is impressionistic music. Debussy doesn't want you to be able to count. He wants to blur the rhythm. He wants everything to be a little bit hazy. So when you listen to it again, you're not going to be able to count to anything. There is there's no very clear meter. I mean, it happens to be three instead of four, but still, you're not going to be able to count. Now, why is that? Hmm. Well, listen to it again and try to try to count like you did with the Tchaikovsky. You're not going to be able to. So you could count all you want. The background figure, that oscillating two-note figure, is just not going to match the melody in the same way that it did with the Tchaikovsky. You could count to three, you could count to four. You're just not going to get that clear meter that we did with Tchaikovsky. Why is that? Well, Debussy's playing a very popular trick, a rhythmic trick, that a lot of composers like. Remember that the figure was two notes, da-da, da-da, da-da. Well, if you look at the music, instead of groups of two notes, it's actually notated in groups of three notes. So instead of one, two, one, two, one, two, it's actually one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three. So it's really I'm exaggerating just to show you how there are groups of three. So he's note he's notating it in groups of three, but he's connecting two notes at a time. In music, you could do that with what's called a slur. It's a line that connects any amount of notes, and Debussy is connecting two notes. So even though the meter is one, two, three, one, two, three, he's pretending that the meter is one, two, one, two. He's connecting two notes at a time. And that blurs the meter. You can't tap your finger you can't hear a regular pulse because he's trying to create a beautiful, unearthly floating sensation. Remember, the whole setting of this is a mythological setting. It has no basis in reality. So he wants you to feel like you're in a very, very exotic location. So he, again, blurs the rhythm, blurs the meter which did not happen on Tchaikovsky because that's not what Tchaikovsky was trying to do because Tchaikovsky was not an impressionistic composer. He composed before that in, in the Romantic period. So that is one way, just like Monet blurred or made his painting hazy, that's exactly what a composer like Debussy can do to his music to make it blurred or hazy. The name of this rhythmic trick, by the way, where you have groups of three notes, but you make it sound like groups of two notes, it's called hemiola. I know that sounds like a disease, but that's exactly what, it, what it's called, and there are plenty of composers who have used that, that uh, underhanded little trick.
Now, we were just talking about rhythm. How would a composer convey an impressionistic feel through harmony? For that, we're going to be looking at one of Debussy's preludes. Now, a prelude is a short piece of music that's focused on one central idea. They're usually pretty short. They could be a few minutes long, or some of them are basically only a minute long. Debussy wrote two books of piano preludes. Each book has 12. And each one of these pieces is so original, so distinctive. They're absolute gems. It's like going to the beach and finding the most rare pearl. I just want to say that when I start spewing out laudatory statements like that, it's partly an objective historical statement, and it's also partly subjective opinion. These pieces, like I was talking about before, have already passed the test of time. They are considered some of the best piano compositions of the 20th century. So regardless of what you think and regardless of what I think, they're considered great pieces of music and they will survive. I happen to like them, so that's the subjective part. I, I really like Debussy's music in general and I love these preludes. Remember, whenever we talk about music, we're not talking about musical taste. We're talking about musical appreciation. You go to any college or high school, there's never going to be a course called musical taste, because that would be a course that teaches you to like it. And you can't like it unless it speaks to you in a very special way. You have to connect with the music to really, really like it. But we can all appreciate it. We can all see the talent and the inspiration and the ingenuity behind how the piece was written. So regardless of whether we really connect with the piece, we can certainly say, oh, I can see how that's a great piece of music, even though it's not really my taste. And that's why some of the best courses you can take in music, if you're not a music major or a music minor or a music appreciation, you get exposed to the music, and that's the most important thing. And that's true of all the arts, getting exposed to literature, getting exposed to visual art, getting exposed to film. Okay, I think I'm done with my little sermon there. I'm going to go over to my Clavanova electric piano and play the very beginning of one of Debussy's preludes. This is the fourth prelude in his first book. And then I'm going to talk about why it's impressionistic, why the harmony is impressionistic. Preludes, Debussy is painting a musical picture, an impressionistic picture to be more exact. Now, this particular piece, like the others, has a certain image in mind, but I'm going to save that for later. I'm going to talk about that later. Right now, I'd like to talk about particular harmonies that Debussy used. They're called dominant chords. So let me just play some. To be exact, the, the chords I just played are called dominant sevenths because they have an extra note in there, but you don't have to worry about that. The important thing is that traditionally in Western European music, all the music that we're familiar with from Bach to Billy Joel, these chords usually resolve. They resolve to a chord called the tonic. So that's their traditional use. That's the use that we're all familiar with. These dominant chords 
have a resolution. They move to another chord, and the name of that chord is called the tonic. Now, I'm going to play one of the dominant chords from the Debussy piece, and I'm going to show you traditionally how it would resolve. So this is traditionally what the chord would do. One more time. Now I'm going to play a whole bunch of these dominant chords and just resolve them the way they would traditionally be resolved. So here's a bunch from Debussy's piece. Now here's the main point. Debussy is using all of those dominant chords that I played in a different way. He's not resolving them. He's not treating them traditionally. He's treating them as sounds, just colors. In the same way that an impressionistic painting could be hazy or blurry, it doesn't look realistic like a photograph, this is exactly what Debussy's doing. He's treating these chords that have been used for hundreds of years as sound colors. Music theorists would say that he's using non-functional harmony. Functional harmony would be using those chords in the traditional way, but Debussy is stripping the function away and he's saying, nanny nanny poo poo, I'm gonna do what I want. Well, no, he's not actually saying that, but you get the point. Now remember I said that Debussy is painting a musical picture. These preludes are very specific images although the way he presents it is very interesting. He has a Roman numeral in the beginning of the prelude, in this case four, IV, and then dot, dot, dot. He doesn't tell you the name of it right away. The name is actually printed at the very end of the prelude. And the name of this particular piece is, ready? The sounds and fragrances swirl through the evening air. He's not forcing this title on you because he doesn't give it to you at the beginning of the prelude on the page. Debussy wants you to listen to the music or if you're a piano player to play the music and decide for yourself what kind of picture it paints for you. And then at the end of the piece, he lets you know what he was thinking. All right, so he's not forcing this impressionistic image on you. He wants you to decide for yourself and then he tells you what he thinks. Now remember, I only played the first few measures, so if you want to hear the rest of that piece, you can look it up on YouTube. My purpose is just to tease you with these little snippets of music. You know, just a few measures here and there. I think it's fun to tease you, because if you like it, then you're going to go explore on your own, and that's what I'm trying to inspire you to do. Okay, now we're going to play a little game. I'm going to play another orchestral piece by Debussy, and see if you can guess what he was thinking. What does this music sound like to you? What kind of musical picture is he painting.
So what do you think? That was called nuage, which means clouds. If you thought of something completely different, that's okay. Debussy doesn't mind. That was just the picture that he was thinking when he wrote the music. I'm going to do one more, and this is actually one of his most famous pieces for orchestra. So see what kind of image you get in your mind when you listen to this. What did you think that was? That was called La Mer, which means the sea. And that was the second movement of three movements, the three separate movements to that piece. Before I conclude the podcast, I just wanted to give credit to the recordings that you've been listening to. The Tchaikovsky was played by the Chicago Symphony Orchestra under Daniel Barenboim. That's under the Teldec label. And the Debussy was also played by the Chicago Symphony Orchestra under Sir George Solti. That one's under the London label. The introductory music heard in the beginning and end of the podcast was from Rachmaninoff Symphony No. 3, and it was Pavo Berglund conducting the Stockholm Philharmonic Orchestra. That's an RCA Victor Red Seal label. I really hope you enjoyed this first podcast. There's a lot more to come. One thing about Dr. Music, it just gets better and better.